0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you
1: so much, and thanks to Deborah Rohde and everyone who's put this together. Um, I hope you all realize just what an extraordinary event this is and what a wonderful opportunity to bring together so many brilliant people who've done such great work on and for women in sports over the years. So I just wanted to acknowledge you all for putting together this great event and say thanks. Um, this title, this panel this afternoon um, may be even more lively than the ones we had this morning, or at least I hope so. Let me briefly put the subject here in a historical context. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the universities in the Northeast, the Midwest, and even out here, uh, had large sports programs. They had football teams, tennis teams, baseball teams, track, lacrosse, etc., Along the lines that we've been, many of us have been discussing today about understanding the value of sports in an educational context, the whole idea of the sound mind and sound body. Now, of course, these large sports programs existed for men. Women had their own programs. They were run within PE programs for the most part, and intercollegiate sports was not really considered a desirable thing throughout most of the country for most of the past century. I would like to point out one particular counterexample, though, just because no one else has brought it up today. Does anybody know when the first intercollegiate uh, contest between women's teams from different universities was? 96, but close enough. And who participated? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I actually scored the one. Just to elaborate, it was Stanford versus Berkeley. And unfortunately, I don't remember who won, but you all can fight that out later. (laughs) Uh Anyway, when Title IX passed, many schools adopted these broad-based, as we now call them now, athletic programs for women, and hence the huge surge in women's participation in the 1970s, and also the additional surge in the 1990s after Supreme, Supreme Court decisions made it clear that women could sue universities if they did not get equitable opportunities to participate. Um, But we have to remember that most athletic programs have limited resources, unlike Stanford, and costs are rising throughout the country. The NCAA estimates that year-by-year spending on intercollegiate athletics is rising at a rate three to four times that of overall university budgets, which themselves are rising much faster than the cost of inflation. So, as Sandy and Bob pointed out this morning, we have very deep problems in American collegiate sports. We also have to remember that Title IX lawsuits and education department guidelines have included language pointing, saying that the proportionality standard, the idea that you have to have the same proportion of women on athletic teams that you have women in the, in the student body, are a safe harbor that meeting the standard as allows a school to be presumed to be in compliance. So let's say you're an athletic director and maybe you've had to spend out, uh, lay out a bunch of money to fire and buy out one coach and hire another one in a sport like football or men's basketball. And you have to shell out another X thousand dollars a year to put your teams in hotel rooms, the night before home games, because everybody else does it. So what are you gonna do? The lawyers are telling you that you need to make the gender numbers work or you're gonna get sued. The business people are telling you that you don't have the money to add women's teams although they usually don't suggest that you cut back on football and men's basketball. Well, we've seen the answer, and it tends to come in cycles, but just in this academic year, Butler University, Clarion University of Pennsylvania, James Madison University, Mansfield University, Murray State University, Ohio University, and Rutgers University have all dropped sports. It's also worth noting that Rutgers, James Madison, Butler, and Ohio dropped women's teams as well as men's teams. I think we all recognize the educational value of sports, and I think we'd all agree that this is a perverse way of making decisions about educational opportunities. But what we're all here to talk about is how can we and how have we found equitable solutions to maximize the value of educational activities that are intercollegiate athletics. We have a fantastic panel here to discuss these things, so I'm gonna shut up and let them talk about the way they see these issues. But let me introduce them very briefly. Mary Jo Kane is a professor and chair. Uh, she's the Dorothy McNeil and Eldridge Elbridge Ashcraft Tucker Chair for Women in Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Did I get that right? Excellent. Uh, she received her. She's also director of the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport, and received her PhD from the University of Illinois. She's an internationally recognized scholar who has published extensively on media representations of athletic females. And she's been doing some great research, which I'm sure she'd be happy to tell you about later, on media images of women in sports and sports marketing. Uh, Next to her is Dick Gould, who has just retired a couple of years ago after 38 years and 17 national titles uh, at Stanford Tennis. And one thing I find interesting, again, poking fun at Stanford for how much money they have, is that you seem to have directors of everything, a director of track and field and a director of tennis, and so Coach Gould is no longer Coach Gould. He is the John L. Hines Director of Tennis. He was instrumental in securing the bid to host the first ever combined men's and women's NCAA championships at Stanford last year. He is a graduate, both at the undergraduate and master's level of Stanford, and uh, was awarded the Bucks Club Leadership Awards for tennis in 1960 as an undergrad. As best I can tell, he's been inducted into every relevant Hall of Fame that exists, including Ventura County, Northern California, Stanford, the Bay Area, and intercollegiate tennis. He has helped ke- keep Stanford at the cutting edge of facilities and using technology to bring the game to an ever widening audience of fans. And finally, we have Eric Pearson, who is chairman of the College Sports Council, an umbrella group formed by coaches' associations to lobby for changes to Title IX guidelines. The group has sued the U.S. Department of Education twice and maintains a website at savingsports.org. Pearson is a former coach of the Princeton University varsity wrestling team, and during his tenure there, served as chairman of the Ivy League Wrestling Coaches Association. As spokesman for the College Sports Council, he has been interviewed by a number of organizations and is a graduate of Princeton University. We're going to start with uh, Mary Jo and then go to Eric, and then Dick will offer some comments and then we'll throw it up for questions. Thank you.
2: Uh, Good afternoon. Before I begin my formal remarks, I too want to thank thank Stanford University, in particular Deborah Rohde and Dina Evans, for inviting me to speak at this historic event, honoring and celebrating Title IX, and also thanks to Welch Suggs, our moderator, who has quite literally written the book on Title IX. My opening remarks today are meant to frame the discussion of our panel and what I want to do is focus on what I think are two competing narratives that have developed over the last decade and reflect, if you will, both sides of the aisle or the differing positions about Title IX, the contest, the struggle that's taking place, especially out with the general public. After I lay out these two narratives, I want to highlight what I call some major facts versus fiction surrounding Title IX, which the previous panel touched on some of them. Then I want to touch on three compliance options that athletic directors typically have available to them, especially at the Division I uh, level uh, around the arms race. And then I want to end with how, in my opinion, when it comes to resolving tensions surrounding Title IX, um, I don't know that I want to say all roads, but many roads lead to football. Okay, with respect to the two competing narratives. Can you all hear me? Am I okay? the first narrative, and this is advanced by the opponents of Title IX, basically say things like, um, it's a well-intentioned but fundamentally flawed law that needs to be overhauled. I mean, you know, they, they'll, certainly they will say, you know, some of my best friends are female athletes, but this is a bad law, especially in terms of how it's enforced, and it absolutely has to be changed. The proponents of Title IX say, the issue isn't Title IX. Title IX is made a scapegoat, and again, it is often football which is both the problem and the solution with how we can grapple with these things in college athletics. Okay, first let me just deconstruct, if you will, the bad law narrative. Frequently opponents of Title IX who argue this often use the language of affirmative action, which should be a red flag and a clue. They talk about how it is a big government quota system that forces schools to drop men's sports in order to comply with the law. And the, the, the way in which they talk about a quota system has to do with the issue of proportionality. And this, as we know, has to do with making sure that, is, that an institution is providing proportional opportunities and benefits as a function of the gender ratio of the undergraduate population. Now, the all roads lead to football narrative, which is frequently advanced by the proponents of Title IX, say, football is the only sport, and this is, I think it's undeniably true, football is the only sport at the Division I level that is able to consistently generate enormous amounts of revenue. Nobody should argue that. However, and this is the key distinction, And as a faculty member, I feel somewhat compelled to give you a homework assignment. Uh, And Donna touched on this briefly. We must make a distinction between programs that generate revenue versus programs that produce a profit. That is the key distinction. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Because there are so few schools that actually generate a profit, even football programs, I think that we need to start looking at the issue of downsizing and how we can link it to compliance. Now I know a number of you, like Linda, I'm looking over at you, you you know, you you talked this morning about we shouldn't cap, we shouldn't eliminate opportunities, but let's, let's think about this issue of downsizing for a minute. The gold standard for producing a football product in this country is the NFL. Their workforce, meaning their roster size, is 53. The average size of a Division I roster, football squad, is anywhere from 114 to 120 with 85 full scholarships. So the question is, if the gold standard requires a workforce of 53, why do we need a gold standard of 115, 120 with 85 full scholarships? I would argue, and I'll, I'll do this in a minute when I get into the fact versus fiction, if we start to look seriously at this notion of downsizing, you can, add, you can begin to add, as well as taking on eliminating unnecessary expenditures like training table, staying in hotels the night before every home game, you can be well on your way to adding a women's sport without cutting a men's non-revenue sport, which no advocate of women's sports wants us to do. And part of this Donna talked about, the, the beauty, if you will, about downsizing, and I'm not saying this is easy at all, but the beauty of, of downsizing, let's say if you, if you cut football teams and scholarships by a third, and the enormous infrastructure that takes, you know, that keep, keeps feeding the beast, keeps feeding the machine, the, your revenue streams are going to stay the same. Your TV revenues stay the same people are still going to go to Stanford. As Donna mentioned this morning, do you really think that people at Stanford or the University of Michigan or Notre Dame are going to cancel their season tickets because the size of the football team is 75 instead of 120? Do you really believe that? So your revenue streams are not impacted in any way, and yet you significantly reduce your outlay every year. Okay, three compliance options for athletic directors who typically find themselves in a very, very difficult spot, and I couldn't agree more with what the athletic directors were saying this morning, which is that, you know, you know, we're sort of driving each other off of a cliff here in terms of this arms race. Typically, what you can do is you can add a women's sport, now to the tune of five, six $600,000 a year of recurring money on a sport where you will never make a dime. You will lose money every year. That's behind door number one. Behind door number two is you can drop a men's sport and recoup five or six hundred thousand dollars a year of recurring money on a sport where you will never make a dime. Behind door number three is that you can walk down the hall and say to the football coach, You don't get to have 85 full scholarships, you don't get to stay in hotels the night before every home game, you don't get an outrageous recruiting budget, and then you will lose your job. (laughs) I mean, So what has typically happened on the ground is that athletic directors who are very smart, and I don't in any way want to minimize the pain of what what it does to athletic directors if they do have to drop a men's sport, but if you can drop a men's sport and say, don't look at me, Title IX made me do it, and keep the spotlight off of the outrageous arms race that we're in, many, many people, as a matter of survival, drop men's sports and don't have to add a women's sport. Okay, now let me just shift quickly to talking about fact versus fiction. I want to just lay out two key arguments and counter arguments. Um, I want to just start out by saying that when I begin to critique football, I'm usually uh, in front of a much more, um, let's say, hostile audience. So I frequently start out by saying, I want you to know that I am not now or have never been a member of the Communist Party. (laughs) I actually happen to love football. Um, And, in fact, because I'm in front of this crowd, I can tell you that I've had a number of feminist interventions from my friends about why is it that you love football? Uh, And it's never taken, and I don't want it to because I love football. But anyway, the first big argument, which goes back to what I've already been talking about, um, in terms of fact versus fiction, is that Title IX is a big government quota system that forces schools to drop men's sports. I want to argue today that the real quota system in college sports is not Title IX, it's 85 full scholarships in football. God did not say on the seventh day and let there be 85 full scholarships. Why is that a magic number? Now the counter to that argument that I get is, but Mary Jo, we're different from the NFL. We need to have big squads in order to be competitive because the NFL can go out and grab people off of a taxi squad. And I agree, but I'm not talking about going down to 20. I'm talking about going down from 120 to, say, 75, from 85 scholarships to, say, 50. And let me just talk about the, 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 the logic around we have to stay big in order to be competitive. Traveling squads are what, 75 to 80 to 85? They don't usually take the whole team. So if you're already at a competitive disadvantage because you're going to an away game, why would you voluntarily Make yourself doubly disadvantaged by taking fewer than 120 people, but they do it all the time to save money. So you can't have it both ways. I do wanna say though, I do have great sympathy for athletic directors because of the situation that they're in, and I am not asking schools or conferences to unilaterally disarm. I would argue for an NCAA mandate to change the roster size. And I realize that you know, as an academic, there's often a wide gap between theory and practice, but that would be one place that we could think about starting. Okay, second um, fact versus fiction, that football is the golden goose that pays for everybody. Again, as Donna and others pointed out, we must make a distinction between revenue producing and profit generating. The majority of of Division I programs or intercollegiate athletics, they do not make money and most football teams don't make money not because people aren't interested, not because there's not an enormous amount of money that's generated, but when you have such an enormous bloated workforce, you have very few in the latter category, meaning that are actually generating a profit. Now, the counter to that when I often say this is that my friends or critics will say to me, but Mary Jo, the genie's out of the bottle, big time college sports as an an economic model is a fact of life, so get used to it. And I say, okay, I don't remember as a faculty member ever voting on. in order for an institution to offer an extracurricular activity, it has to make a profit. But if that's the new model, then most sports go away, including most men's sports, including most football teams. And What happens is is that the opponents of Title IX often want it both ways. They bleed money on football programs which the university then subsidizes because nobody ever says, well, we're going to eliminate the football team if it doesn't make money. So, on the one hand, they argue an economic model, but then if you point out how much money they lose, they say, but everybody should have an opportunity. We're not about money, Mary Jo. All right, let me just make a couple of, uh, a few concluding remarks here. Um, I wasn't going to make this one, but this came to me as I was listening to people this morning, and especially the, the panel right before us. It just seems to me, in terms of when there's a will, there's a way, if universities can figure out how to pay football coaches four million dollars and plus and rising salaries, if they can figure out how to do that, they can figure out how to add a women's team and not drop a men's team. I really think they can. That's just a thought. Um, in terms of some observations, let me just end by saying the following. that We should never forget this, especially on the thirty-fifth anniversary of Title IX. It is one of the most important and successful pieces of civil rights legislation ever passed in this country. For the first time in our history, we have unprecedented participation levels up and down the food chain. That has led for the first time ever in our country to having a critical mass of girls and women who play sports. We've always had a Babe Dedrickson saharius here and a Billie Jean King there. But what we now have as a direct result of Title IX is a critical mass. That leads to my third point. For the first time ever, young women all over this country grow up with a sense of entitlement to sports. It would never occur to the women that I teach at the University of Minnesota, many of whom are scholarship athletes, that if they were good and they were willing to pay the price, that an opportunity wouldn't be there, let alone a scholarship or a professional league. Now, I think that sense of entitlement speaks volumes of how much progress we have made. I think, so that's the good news. I think the bad news is that they grew up with a sense of entitlement, (laughs) and they have no idea how quickly this could end. Um, Let me just say one last thing. I think it's important, especially with our 35th anniversary in June, that we should always remember this. As a direct result of Title IX, in one generation we have gone from young girls hoping that there is a team to young girls hoping that they make the team. And because of the many women and men in this room, I would suggest to you that there is a universe of difference in that measure of hope. Thank you.
3: Mary Jo, thank you. Eric? Yes, uh, thank you. Can you hear me? Is that good? Uh, I'd like to start with some agreement and then we'll probably differ a bit as I go into my presentation but I really want to uh, join my fellow panelists and thank Stanford University Center on Ethics and all the sponsors and especially Dina Evans and Professor Rode for making this conference possible. Uh, Events like this are very important. They allow all of us to share our concerns without having the views filtered through the media which to me is very important. and It's it's going to be one of the preliminary things that I get into here in my brief presentation. I think that the title for this panel discussion is very appropriate, Facts, Fiction and the Future. There's been much debate about what is fact and what is fiction when it comes to Title IX. So here I'd like to begin my remarks by clarifying some important background facts about the College Sports Council because I think it's relevant to your perception of our discussion here. Number one, we support Title IX. Unequivocally, the only exception the only thing we take exception with is proportionality. And you've heard that in uh, several, several presentations earlier today. So number one, we support Title IX. And number two, we are enthusiastic supporters of women's sports. Our members include mothers and fathers of both male and female athletes, coaches who have wives and daughters who are athletes as well as former athletes who are now proud parents of male and female athletes. It's hard to get into the athletic community to be a coach, to be involved and not love all sports. And and I just wanted to emphasize that to begin. We don't want to see any students deprived of the opportunity to play sports because of discrimination. That's why we have no problem supporting Title IX. In fact, we don't I don't really know any anti-Title IX people in the Olympic sports community where the College Sports Council draws most of its support, unlike what the media would like you to believe. Frequently I I have to correct reporters and they say, so you're anti-Title IX position? I say, we're not anti-Title IX. Uh, We are not a men's sports advocacy group. We are a sports advocacy group. although Ted Leland did mention earlier that there was one person out there in that commission that didn't didn't believe that women should play sports. You know, you will find that in people who who think things like that in in the general population. But it is very important that as we approach solutions to this issue, to understand that there are people out there who support Title IX and support women's sports, but see that there are problems with the current enforcement. Uh, As I said, to be more precise, uh, it's the proportionality standard of the three-part test. It's the only thing that we take issue with. The CSC has extensive hands-on experience in dealing with schools that have dropped teams. Uh, I've personally worked with dozens of teams that were threatened or ended up being eliminated. Sometimes we managed to save the teams. It's becoming increasingly difficult Uh, just this year alone, as well Mentioned earlier, we've seen teams dropped, and unfortunately, they're dropping multiple teams at once. And that's something that we spend a lot of time in fighting and trying to save these teams, both male and female teams. Initially, when the announcements are made to eliminate a sports team, it's most common, from my experience, for administrators to cite budgetary reasons as the cause. Usually, schools don't like to blame Title IX for cutting programs and it's only after alumni and parents offer to help with funding that administrators begrudgingly admit that proportionality was a factor, a major factor in their decision and is often the factor why they refuse the money and and choose not to continue the team even though it would be technically self-funded. There are countless examples where men's teams are cut despite the offer to self-fund And granted, the self-funding would be a slight down, a step down from the university support, but the guys are willing to accept that in order just to have a chance to play. In addition to the elimination of teams that's done to reduce male athletic participation, coaches of men's teams are also forced to limit their roster sizes in order to reduce the numbers of male athletes in the entire athletic department. I've heard many stories over the years from coaches who don't want to cut these students from their teams. And this practice, you may have caught it earlier today, this practice is referred to as roster management. We feel it's, it's straightforward discrimination based on gender, only it's discrimination against male athletes. It exists only because of proportionality, is not gender neutral when it's done, and it's the result of athletic directors being forced to just count the numbers of participants in their athletic departments and trying to change that ratio so it fits the ratio of their undergraduate student body. Roster management is very common. You don't hear about it much. Uh, Coaches don't like to talk about it. They don't want to get their athletic directors angry with them. It's very common, more common than teams actually being dropped. And again, that's uh, an unfortunate consequence of, of the proportionality standard. In talking about Title IX, you can't help but get into conversations about football, so I feel that I have to talk a little bit about football. Uh, the previous panel spent a lot of time talking about the impact of football. It, uh, it always enters into the discussion at some point. I can't have a conversation about Title IX and the elimination of teams without someone mentioning football as the cause. Football, Division 1A football, generates huge revenues at, at the uh, the Division 1A level, at the same time it, it does incur huge expenses and sometimes they are excessive. But if we were to assign full blame to men's teams being eliminated to football, or the football is the problem that always comes up in uh, the conversation, then it would logically follow that if we eliminate football teams altogether, then we'd stop seeing teams eliminated. And if we look at the facts, in the NCAA there are, at present, 1,064 active and provisional member schools. In the NCAA, in all three divisions, there are a total of 625 football teams. So that means that 41% of schools in the NCAA have no football teams. So if football is the problem, then we wouldn't lose teams at those non-football schools. And that just isn't the case. We see programs dropped, roster management occurring at the non-football schools. To take it further uh, with with football, if you're focused only on the big-time programs with full scholarships and big budgets, then you can remove the Division III schools that are non-scholarship and then we can blame football only 30%, 37% of the time by, by taking out those Division Three schools. But if you're really talking about spending and blaming spending, then we really need to focus on the full scholarship, 85 football scholarships in Division A, and what people call the big-time football category. That narrows down the problem down, down to only 118 schools that are in Division 1A. Or 11 percent of all NCAA schools. So if football is the problem at every one of those schools, it can only be the problem 11 percent of the time. But it seems to get 95 percent of the discussion time. And we like to focus on Division 3 non-scholarship athletes because they're important and they in some ways are the ones who who really go on and take with them those the valuable experience and become successful because of their athletic experience. They play because they love the game. And, and unfortunately, a lot of discussion doesn't take those Division three athletes uh, into consideration. We like to believe that we're advocates for the student athletes. We don't, even if they're non-scholarship athletes and not part of a, a big sport that gets on television. The majority of athletes don't get scholarships and they're they'll never have a chance to play any professional sport. But some people will also say, well, if you're, if you're not uh, taking scholarships into account, then you're, you're missing out on the fact that football in Division three also has large rosters. Well, yes, and that means a lot of participants. And yes, we think participation is the bottom line. We want as many students participating in sports as possible. So we don't think large rosters are, are a problem especially at those Division Three schools. And again, if, you're, if you don't have the proportionality standard to worry about, then you don't have to worry about those large rosters. I've also uh, been told, well, Eric, you're, you're missing out on the big spending in basketball and, and, or lacrosse or whatever it may be. And we're not, de- we're not denying that, that budgetary pressures are, are not a factor. They are, the budgetary factors exist with every institution in the world and these economic factors will exist till the end of time. Uh, and, and we're not denying that. But we are able, oftentimes, when it's just a, a budgetary matter or economic decision, to scrape together funds to continue these programs and continue to have the opportunities available to the kids. We've just seen too many examples when a school announces that they're going to drop a team, people step up to provide funding, and the, the, the funding is turned down, which is a shame, because nobody benefits, nobody benefits at all. It doesn't hurt female athletes when you continue the male team, especially in sports like swimming and track, where they train together. And there's a culture, they're, they're, they have a bond, and it hurts the women's teams to drop the men's equivalent. That's what's happening at JMU. They've dropped their track, men's track, and and, uh, men's swimming and kept the the female teams. And it's the the female students that are the leaders speaking out trying to save the team. It's really a great thing to see. Not the dropping of the teams, but to see the students working together. Proportionality creates incentives to decrease participation, which we feel at the College Sports Council is completely antithetical to the idea of providing sports opportunities for the sake of their educational value. So to to get to my final topic, to touch on the future, what I see, if we change nothing with Title IX, we'll continue to see our colleges eliminate men's teams and eliminate small roster women's teams like tennis and gymnastics. Proportionality will continue to incentivize administrators to decrease participation rates but I think that we have to do something to to stop this trend. Uh, We recommend reform of the three-part test so that it continues to protect women, but so that it doesn't harm the male athletes. We should absolutely keep the guidance that ensures equal access to facilities, equivalent funding of teams, recruiting budgets, and all the things that female coaches tell me that are important to their teams. We also feel that the best way to protect teams from elimination is to give students a voice in the process that that determines sports sponsorship. Uh, Someone mentioned earlier, I think it was Donna Lopiana, about having some power over those student fees. I think that could be a systemic change. Also, we believe that surveying both male and female students should be conducted every year to give schools a gauge as to how well they're serving the interests of their students. Surveying prospective students also would be helpful and should be included in the overall interest calculation so students are, are, the students that are considering a school let the school know what, what interest they have as well. So in conclusion, we, we have seen in the College Sports Council that we're driving ma- many male athletes out of the system and the previous panel discussed what's, are we going to see change in the system. Well, it's already changing. And, it's, and there's an underground current in the, in the change. We're seeing these students that are being driven out of the varsity collegiate system creating their own opportunities. And there is a significant growth in club championships and lacrosse, swimming, and wrestling that are entirely self-funded. And I think it's go, it would be unfortunate if the best athletes leave our varsity sports system and the, the adult guidance that goes with it. if if they start, instead of participating in their club varsity team, they want to participate in their, excuse me, instead of participating in their varsity program sponsored and controlled by the athletic department, it's very likely that you'll see the top athletes participate in a club system that's completely out of control of the university. And this would be, I think it would be a tragedy. So, I, I think as we go forward, the biggest question is, is how are we going to keep the focus of the overall, the mission of athletics as it relates to education? How are we going to continue to keep the system honest, as, as Welsh Suggs brought up earlier in his, his question? And the incentives right now, as set up by proportionality, are not keeping the system honest.
4: So, thank you. Eric, thank you. Dick? Well, away we go. Again, my thanks to uh, Deborah and, and Dina. What a, what a phenomenal job. This undertaking has been incredible. Uh, we all have to appreciate and respect it. And uh, I might mention that Dina's uh, grandfather was an NCAA, well, it wasn't NCAAs was in those days, a national intercollegiate doubles champion while here at Stanford a long time back. So uh, she has a little tennis roots. It's good to see her doing something other than running, or at least have it in her background. Uh, I'm going to address this a little bit more in terms of how Title IX has affected my sport. Uh, and so bear with me as I do that. I, being the oldest guy in his audience, those person in his audience, uh, I can relate to, as opposed to what Bob Bowlesby said, he came after Title IX, uh, I can relate to what it was like before Title IX. I remember in 1972, the year the Office of Civil Rights enacted Title IX, uh, I was coaching the Stanford men and our budget was 100% covered. Whatever we needed was certainly adequate. We usually had a little left over each year. And, in fact, uh, I was constantly told that I would always have whatever funding I needed in my program. The women playing tennis at that time, uh, my wife Ann was on the women's team then, and uh, they had no budget whatsoever. Uh, Equipment, balls, uniforms, men, 100% covered, whatever we needed. Women, there were none. Deborah, I think you said this earlier this morning while I was still in bed, uh, uh, they had used balls at practice, uh, uh, no, no travel money. Uh, for practice and competition, the men had unlimited practice and competition. Uh, women, that was before limitations of men's playing seasons, women practiced twice a week at Stanford. They were, in essence, a club or PE team. If someone were really good in the team, she would have to chip in and pay most her way to the national championship, usually without any help from the university. Facilities, the men's facilities were very, very good. The women played on a different facility, not quite as good, and certainly very separate from where the men were. Participation, the men in those days, freshmen could not play in the varsity. There was no, uh, by NCAA rule, uh, we had a freshman team. We had a junior varsity team, which uh, Dina's father played on. I had the pleasure of coaching him. And we had a junior varsity. We had probably 30 people playing men's tennis and others who wanted to the women had basically a glorified PE class. Scholarships, we had eight full scholarships. Women of course had none. That was not too long ago. I remember those days well. My wife Ann constantly reminds me me of them. While I speak about Ann, I also say that she was the first Title IX hire as a head women's coach at Stanford. And in fact, led Stanford to his first national championship in women's sports, women's tennis. At that time, we had the opportunity to work very closely together, and uh, it was very apparent to me, both from what she told me her experiences were as a player, uh, that Title IX was very, extremely necessary, and that the concept itself was great and it was good. I'm so proud of this university for the lead it took in Title IX in combining our compa- departments, in spite of quite a bit of protest from the old guys, uh, combining our departments, and, and hopping on the bandwagon early, and being a leader in showing that it could be done. But don't think this doesn't come without a price. There's only so many dollars to go around. Tennis as an example, and we have two wrestlers at this table, Bob Bowles because a, rest, Bob Bowles because a wrestler can tell other horror stories. Uh, and D1 Tennis. The uh, excuse me, in tennis in general, there have been 179 men's programs dropped as of the end of last year, and also 83 women's programs, because there was not enough money, not interest, not enough money to go around. But more two than two to one men's programs were dropped. Division one was much greater. 59 men's programs have been dropped, and only 12 women's programs. Participation. We no longer have a junior varsity or a freshman team. The facilities don't give us that many courts, equal facilities for men or women. And the last report I had was the 2005 school year. Men's teams dropped down to 998 of all the schools in D1, 2, and 3 NAIE and junior colleges, whereas the women's teams. We're at 1,162 participants also dropped for men, obviously, from 7,210, and women 8,448. Now, remember, women's programs were dropping some too, but some are being added, but not at the rate men's programs are dropping, not nearly at the rate. Men's scholarships reduced from eight to the equivalent of four and a half, and women's scholarships from get-go have been eight full. Our Stanford budget, which I was told will always be sacred, has not increased for tennis in 17 years. The women's budget is equal to the men's. In fact, they spend a little bit more. And both budgets fund about 40% of their budgets, both programs. It's interesting in that our tennis programs are basically self-sufficient. We have enough income from the various things we do to cover the part we must fund and the part that the, the uh, Department of Athletics funds. We also, as a, as a department, the tennis department, tennis program, raised nearly $20 million to build our facility without a dime coming from the Department of Athletics or the university. And we did it together, the men and women. We talk about salaries. Our women's coach salary is actually higher than our men's coach salary. She's been here longer as the head coach, and she's had greater success. It is rightful. It's fairly, fairly, fairly close, but she should get more. Where do we go to tomorrow? What's the future look like? Well, we talked a little bit about proportionality, but I would like to talk more about the thing that I think most, most of the leaders of the women's movement in this room don't like to talk about and want to see abolished, or at least Diminished, and that is of accommodating women's interests and according to uh, and their abilities, providing opportunities proportionate to the exhibited interest in a particular sport. Again, I go to my own sport, that of tennis. I also am going to indulge a little bit as a sport specific and advocate sport specific enactment of Title IX. There is not equal opportunity for men in my sport of tennis. Donna spent quite a bit of time talking about equal opportunity. In my sport, we do not have that. When Title IX came about and throughout the years, and I follow this quite closely, there was a big talk about we have to fund emerging sports, give them a chance to grow. In my sport, tennis has never been an emerging sport. Tennis has been around for men and women and for age groups competitively for over 120 years, nationally, and within different sections of the country. Stanford's IM participation in intramurals is much like that uh, that the Chronicle of Higher Education has reported. In tennis, it's about four men to one woman, another indication of interest. When we used to have team tryouts, up until a few years ago, four times as many men would try out for the team as women, in spite of the fact the sport has been going on for an equal number of years, equal number of opportunities for competition. The United States Tennis Association divides the country into 17 geographic sections for administration. There are age group competitions in every age group conceivable, 85 and over, 10 and under. They all have rankings. To get a ranking in each of these boys or girls or men's or women's age groups, you have to play a certain number of events Referring again to interest-driven, the opportunity is equal for both men and for women, for boys and for girls. Northern California, last year, the number of boys in the 18-and-under age group who qualified for ranking because they had the interest to play enough tournaments was 386, for girls, 166, more than 2 to 1. There certainly is no vacuum of opportunity for tennis, for women. It certainly is not an emerging sport for women. I mentioned scholarships. They're the equivalent of four and a half to men to eight to women. If anything, based on interest, that should be totally reversed. Four and a half for women and eight for men. Believe me, I'd settle for six and six. That's how many players start on a tennis team. A bit about that scholarship limitation, I've seen the effects of it both ways. When we had eight scholarships for men, the elite schools, probably four or five of us, SCU, CLA, Georgia, and maybe one or two others, could buy up the talent. But when four and a half scholarships came in, there were only four, or three, or four, or five distinguished teams in the country. When we went to four and a half gradually, that got eroded, and then three and a half scholarships that went to Cal, went to Stanford, SC, and UCLA, were then going to Fresno State, and uh, Mississippi State, and other schools, and the first thing you know that uh, there's a tremendous parity in tennis, in men's tennis, and it has been great for college tennis. Women's tennis can still buy up the players. You see women's tennis where there are three, maybe four, contrary to what anyone says, I challenge you to show me differently, schools that really have a chance to win the national championship. And if you'd made that four and a half limit apply to the women, you would see about 10 more schools within three or four years added to that list of four or five immediately. There's an NCAA rule saying that if you are a scholarship athlete, you're entitled to training table, which most student athletes would deem as an advantage. Maybe a little better food, maybe not. I don't know. With eight scholarships, basically our entire women's team, they have eight players in the team this year, can receive training table. With the equivalent of four-and-a-half scholarships, I can either let my players who are four-and-a-half players who are receiving scholarship take part in training table, much to the chagrin and jealousy of the other players, some of them who may be even number one or two in the team on no scholarship, which often has happened at Stanford, not have that opportunity. As a coach, am I going to let my player divide my team by that, by that perk? Of course not. As a result, we elect not as a team in men's tennis to get any of our players, the limited few so to speak, use training table. I think the NCAA made some knee-jerk reactions to Title IX. I think they should revisit that. These don't make any sense to me. In tennis we play six singles matches, we have three doubles matches. Women by Inslee Rule, can have three coaches coaching. I have two eyes. I'm watching two courts. We have doubles. Each woman coach is on each of the courts. Men's tennis, however, can only have two coaches. I only have two eyes to watch three matches. When I go to an event, a junior event to recruit players, Jen, when Lily and Frankie go down to the National Women's Championship at your club, wherever Jen is, two coaches can be there to evaluate players at the same time. And many times when you have 32 matches, 16 matches going on at once, the two or three players you most want to see are playing at the same time and not in side-by-side courts. The women have the advantage of having two coaches there to watch two of those players who might play at the same time. Men can only have one coach at a recruiting site at one time, a tremendous disadvantage comparably. In our Pac-10 conference, I have coaches to say that they've been told by the athletic director, they must limit their squad size. They're capped. Coach, you have eight players. So coach then goes out and gets four or five other players, non-roster players, to serve as hitting managers. Women's programs are told, contrarily at the same school, to add as many bodies as possible to make the numbers meet. I'm very proud of the Stanford tennis program. Ann and I developed it after Title IX together. We have in our sport at Stanford the same booster club. We send the same solicitation for our program, not for our men's team or our women's team. We have the same team banquet we have the same team guide, and we sell our season tickets as a co-ed pass for men's and women's tennis. Now, if we were to go to interest-driven, the third part of the Civil, Civil Rights Test, and use solely that, we have to do it in fairness both ways. There are less age group swimmers than there are male swimmers. Therefore, in swimming, there should be less scholarships and probably less players on a team. I'm sure there are other examples as well. Also, we must count for emerging sports, no question about it. Would water polo have ever been where it was today? As one example, one of the fastest-growing sports there is, if it were not treated as it was, an emerging sport. And look at the tremendous opportunities for women it has given. Phenomenal. Great thing. Interest-driven works both ways. I think that we have to talk a little about being hypocritical in some things. Artificial measures to make compliance work. I, I, I don't understand why if we're trying to increase opportunities for women's sports, we have male practice partners in basketball and now a little more in soccer and women's volleyball. I'm totally against that concept because our players are not getting equivalent on that team, although coaches I've seen deny it, who aren't getting the same opportunity as the starters are. I really take issue with the point that, as Linda pointed out I think today earlier, the decline in women's coaches. It's not a matter of less women interested in jobs, that may be the case, but if we announced our women's tennis position was open tomorrow, we would have a male or female apply. But believe me, we would also have several male apply for the job. But I guarantee you there'd be some females apply as well. We must treat the coaching and the development of coaches in women's sports the same as we treat, unless we're going to be hypocritical about it, the same as we treat our athletes. We give them every opportunity to develop. I'm astounded when the women's sports organizations are not outspoken about the fact that in that profession, 1978 Linda study said had 58 percent of the women in coaching women's sports. Now it's gone down. I think to 42 and some percent. Each year it's gone down and down and down. That to me is tremendously hypocritical. And I think every woman, a woman here who's a part of women's organization should fight that. Last study I saw said that there were two. 2000, I think it was, a couple years before that, said of 534 newly created head coaching positions, 80% for women, 80% were filled by males. It's not right, ladies. Be true to yourself all the way through. And I want to talk a little bit about Mary Jo and what she said about football. On one hand, we're very, very lucky to have football, and we're even more lucky to have television. Do you think we could implement Title IX without the growth of television in sports in college? There is no humanly possible way, period. Title IX sounds great, but you can't do it without money. Who would we be without television? But look what TV has done to our, quote, student athletes. Football games are played on Monday night, Friday night, Thursday night any time of day. <laughs> used to be basketball games, uh, Sandy, SC yes, and UCLA come up play Stanford and Cal on a Friday, Saturday. But now because of TV, we have to play Thursday or Sunday or sometimes Thursday at one location and the adjacent location, the travel partner, would play on a Sunday. These are our student athletes having split this because of TV. It talks very loudly. Money talks. I think we have to get away from using football as a wedge. I think it's used, frankly, as a wedge. Uh, yes, there is a lot of revenue generated from football. I know it's really made our budget. When I say football, I mean not only gate, but I mean TV. That $6 billion con- uh, contract with basketball, which brought in $564 million this year for the NCAA, which 90% of which goes to the conferences on a sharing formula. Uh, That's a lot of money to support Title IX. But football skews participation numbers, expenses, salaries, basketball does too, and the result is drop drop programs like wrestling, gymnastics, swimming and tennis, men and women. On the other hand, football, and Mary Jo, I agree with you 100%, it has to be fair, realistic and reasonable. There must be a compromise. You were pretty generous with the pro roster. The pro roster is 45 players with eight taxi squad members, and they play 16 games, regular season. College now is gradually, because of TV and money, student athletes now are playing 12 games, sometimes 13. After World War II, for a number of years when there were short male athletes, there was one platoon football. Coaches played offense and our players played offense and they played defense. We can't exist on 45 football players on scholarship. To heck with the 65. I used to be a football coach. That's crazy. But I suggest the public would never know the difference. The pros themselves, the uh, pros that what a great opportunity. They see players on both sides of the ball. But I suggest that you think about a compromise. Women's sports organizations. You say, "Okay, we will take football out of the equation. If you reduce your scholarships to 45 or 50, use it. See what happens." Another outside-the-box option: combine sports where possible. <laughs> Billy Jean would love this. College tennis is so much more fun to watch if you had world team tennis format. If I were in AD and I was running out of money, I would combine the teams. I would have one coach for a world team tennis team. And think of football again. You reduce your roster size in half, you cut half your coaching salaries down. But it would be a lot more fun to watch team tennis that way. It would certainly equalize opportunities, maybe not in coaching. Uh, Swimming. Co-ed teams, I think track and field, you could do it. In your relays, you could have co-ed teams. Volleyball, pro volleyball, I think they tried co-ed teams for a time. If you have to cut money, you can think of something like that. Now, the problem is, this doesn't prepare our young students for a life after college. You don't play a five, first one to win five games in a tennis match, world team tennis, and then go on to the pros where you play two out of three or three out of five. Title IX, it is a great and a good thing. The implementation is wrong. In my sport, it is totally abused. I'm very jealous of Title IX, the way it's been implemented in my sport. What Title IX should stand for, it happens, just the opposite happens in my sport, period, flat-out. I think you have to be careful when you look at it, and you should not throw everybody into the same jungle. Don't make me go out there and coach in the same courts and do everything the same, and fundraise together, and everything else, and uh, compare me to our women's coach, who has twice the opportunities I have, in terms of scholarships, et cetera. My sister sent me a nice article today. She was just retired as Dean of Women's Studies at Florida State, and sent me a nice article today on uh, a nice article in Duke Magazine, on their basketball program, how it was when a gal started there as a player, was talked into going there, and what's happened in the last 30 years. Quite remarkable. And I have three daughters who have played Division I uh, teams, swimming, tennis, volleyball, two of them have been captains of the team. Hey, I, I am a big supporter of Title IX, but I ask you in closing to look at how the interpretation and implementation, implementation as it currently stands is hurting sports like mine, unfairly and totally uncalled for. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Dick. Before we open it up to questions, I wanted to pose one question. I get to do this since I'm the moderator. um, To Mary Jo and to Eric, which is to respond to Dick's basic point about the idea of providing opportunities for women proportioned to interest rather than proportioned to numbers or by another metric.
2: Well, you know, I think that... Is that... Is this better? Okay. Um, see, here's the issue about interest, as I was just thinking about this, um, and I'm an academic, so you'll have to you know, forgive me, but in the early days of Title IX, I want somebody to do a master's thesis or a dissertation out there, okay? Here's what I predict. In the early days of Title IX, we never heard any of the opponents criticize proportionality. Why? Because women made up about 35 to 40% of the undergraduate population. Now that they make up 54, 55%, I think proportionality has become the bugaboo. So let me just say that. So I'm, I'm predicting there's a dissertation or a thesis out there, but let me talk about interest. I think that logically, who would disagree with saying that we need to use some measure of interest to determine what kind of opportunities an institution should offer? And I have absolutely no problem with that, theoretically. But here is the problem on the ground. The entire sports structure in this culture has been historically and traditionally set up to pursue or for males to be interested in sports. If men weren't interested in sports they were stigmatized so the entire culture is set up to obsess about male interest in sports and historically for females it's been just the opposite for women and I see a lot of hit, right for women like myself I'm 56 years old I was tremendously interested in sports. I was labeled I was stigmatized, I was a tomboy, I was a lesbian. So to suggest, and and, and there is enormous hostility to Title IX, and I mean obviously, So, so all I'm saying is this, that when you say that interest should now be the gold standard of compliance rather than proportionality, you can't do this in a vacuum and suggest that a system has not been set up to emphasize male interest and to suppress female interest. And so, I mean, I I just think that we we need to, to be aware of that. And there's one other little nugget here that we need to think about. Creating opportunities or providing opportunities for people creates interest. Build them a ballpark and they will come. No one ever expected that we would be where we are with how much progress we've made with Title IX because we provided an opportunity and the interest exploded. Let's not stop now.
4: But don't penalize a sport like mine, where it's always been there.
2: But Title IX isn't that's the, the, the fundamental issue here is I mean, you talked about let's not use football as a wedge. The wedge isn't football, it's Title IX. Schools are dropping sports, men's non revenue sports, and I don't think that they should. I'm absolutely opposed to schools dropping men's non revenue sports. But it is not because of Title IX. That's not the reason. If, if you're in a, you know, just one quick thing and then I'll let um, Eric have a chance to respond. You know, you said that even in Division III sc- schools, that roster size doesn't matter because you don't have scholarships. It does matter in the following way, especially in public institutions supported by tax dollars. If an athletic director says to the parents of a young woman, we don't have enough money in our budget to add a soccer team for your daughter, or if we do, we're gonna have to drop the men's wrestling team which is outrageous, but we do have enough money to have 115 kids on the football team. That's simply not acceptable. I don't care if you have 700 people on the football team, but not if it means that in, or not if an athletic director comes back and says, "Sorry, we don't have enough money in the budget to add a women's team without dropping a men's non-revenue sport." It's not fair.
3: Uh, yeah, to start with uh, the question about surveys. Uh, the idea behind surveys is to find out what people are interested in and what their interests are as college students and if you can find a better way to find out what someone wants than asking them put that forward. If we, can, if we can find a better way to measure interest of students on campus uh, than surveys, let's let's look at some of the options, put them on the table. Also, I think it's fair to uh, survey prospective students so that universities can look and see what the pool of applicants, what their interests are as well. Because a lot of people say, well, it's crazy to do surveys because a woman isn't going to go to a a school that doesn't have a lacrosse team and then say, I want to play lacrosse. And if a school can look at the larger body and say, well, there's interest here to have a women's lacrosse team, I, I think that's a per- perfectly reasonable thing. At the same time, I, I understand that there is some fear about doing anything to Title IX uh, because we've come so far and, it, and, and women's sports are now thriving. Uh, but we're 35 years from 1972. And frequently, I go to campuses, talking to students and administrators, trying to save teams. And I ask the students, what do you think about this? Do you?" do you feel that you know what you want and would you feel comfortable with with being surveyed and, and being able to express your interest and they they say sure i know what i want i when i i'm a college student i'm a young adult i know what i want um there was some criticism about the survey being in spam email which i think uh that will be addressed in the following uh panel but as far as i understand the, the survey was intended or should be part of an online registration process, so you can't register for class unless you you click through this survey so there it won't be confused and as spam email. Uh, I think you have to be fair if you're going to measure interest and, and and bend over backwards and, and try to uh, get the best measure you possibly can uh, that that's uh, surveying is I think if we look at going forward, we, we have an option. We can do nothing, and we can continue to see the carnage, or we've got to talk about ways to fix this. And that's what we're talking about, and uh, I, I'm open to suggestions.
2: Can I make some suggestions about Please, interest thanks. surveys? That's why we're here. You just <laughs> said, exactly. put some, never ask an academic to put something on the table. Um, first of all, males have never had to establish an a priori level of interest in order to receive an opportunity. That I'm aware of. So, are we going to now survey males? Please. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's, absolutely. All right. All right. That's we good. Lo- That's good. We would good.
3: love
1: for that Secondly,
2: as Linda pointed absolutely. out this morning, methodologically, it's an outrage. The, the survey is outrageous. So, what I would do, if you want to use interest surveys, is work with the best methodologists in this country, who know how to survey people with reliable and valid measures, but we first need to come up with, well, what's the definition of interest? And I have a feeling that mine might be a little bit different from the other two people on this panel. I also would like to suggest, what's the triggering point for determining interest? 20% interest? 40% interest? 60% interest? At what point, at what percentage do you have to trigger is, is a school in, compli- in non-compliance as a function of level of interest? I do think, Eric, I'm glad you made the point about Inter- interviewing or getting interest data from prospective students, because here's one, of the, here's one of the problems. Let's say at the University of Minnesota, where hockey is very popular, it wasn't until a few years ago that we had a women's hockey team, thanks to Chris Volz. Now let's, let's think about if we don't survey high school kids, which we don't at this point, in terms of prospective students. Here's how it goes. We would have had high school girls, and we did, all over the state of Minnesota, who were great high school hockey players, who were desperate to come to the University of Minnesota and be on the hockey team but there wasn't a hockey team, so they went somewhere else. So when we then survey incoming freshman women to see if they're interested in hockey, they're not there to be interviewed because they didn't come. That's my point about create an opportunity and then it will come. And then I also think (laughs) be careful what you wish for, those of you who now want to use interest, especially if we're going to expand it to men because here's my prediction. I guarantee you that in the state of Minnesota, there is infinitely more interest in men's soccer and in men's volleyball and in men's hunting and fishing than there is in men's gymnastics. Guaranteed. So if you're gonna open up that Pandora's box, I wanna know what the rules and the parameters are to say the University of Minnesota is now obligated, based upon this interest survey, to add lacrosse, to add soccer, and to add volleyball, and to dump gymnastics. I mean, again, you're talking, I mean, the only people who are going to benefit if we go down this path at this point, unless we get it right, all working together are the lawyers. I'm serious, and some of my best friends are lawyers, Marsha. But I'm, I mean, we, it's going to be a nightmare. Be careful what you wish for.
4: Well, I talked about swimming. There's more, there are more age group swimmers in, uh, in women uh, age group than in men. There's, right. an, there's, a, there's a, a demonstrated interest. Therefore, the scholarship should be adjusted accordingly. I agree with you. And that might happen to a sport like gymnastics. It's a fact uh, in certain areas. And in tennis, you don't need an interest sur- survey. You already have it through all the age groups throughout the country. It's there. It tells you. We don't need a survey, it's right here.
2: But what's the triggering point? That's what I want to know. I think
4: you don't. 40%? Tri- no, no. It's the percentage of men interest wise as opposed to the percentage of women. And the oh, survey, if you're going to do one, does who are interested. And you make it according to that. And I don't think it has to be a college survey, it can be a high school survey.
1: But I think honestly, let's, it can't be an emerging think, sport,
4: it's got to be a sport that's established.
1: I think we have a lot of people who'd love to jump into this conversation. So at that point, we have microphones on both ends of the room, and I see lots of hands up. And we'll start with Deb Rohde.
2: Thank you, this was terrific. I, I wish I uh, could get Mary Jo and Welch to respond to Eric's point about what about the reductions in the non-football schools. Because, Mary Jo, you, you know, you focused your attention on football as the problem and the solution, and I know whilst you spent some time talking about the broader strategic questions, and you, when you're in a universe where there are 40% of, of NCAA schools that don't have football teams, what's, what's the solution there? And so if the two of you could offer a few thoughts on it, it would be
0: great.
1: I would say that the budget constraints are there for all athletic programs whether or not they have football. Football happens to be a tremendously expensive sport, but if you look at a school like Marquette University in Milwaukee, they have to compete in, did they just move to the Big East? I can never keep straight after all the conference switching, but anyway, they are trying to operate a number of sports in an increasingly expensive environment. And, yes, football places a certain set of strains on a university budget, but even without football, you still have a lot of those same strains. And what we're actually seeing now and where the sports are being cut, um, Eric may have different numbers, but my impression is that they're mostly in the schools that are playing lower-division football, either outside the Bowl Championship Series or even mm-hmm. outside of Division 1A. James Madison, for example, plays a very expensive 1AA brand of football. Well, i try to do actually,
3: some numbers on that, yeah. actually.
1: Okay. Um, anyway, just to wrap up what I was going to say real quick then, I think that you see Marquette was dropped wrestling uh, several years ago um, under great pressure. Um, they faced the same constraints in terms of budgets and trying to maintain a high-profile basketball team that made it to the Final Four a few years ago. And while most of those schools are seeing their numbers much closer to a 50-50 ratio of male-to-female athletes, they still are under the same budgetary pressure as schools that have football, whether it makes money or not.
4: Remember the, that Division I TV contract uh, for football, uh, your, your championship bowl games and football, and your Division, your division I uh, championship basketball series. Uh, that money really doesn't filter down to Division Two and Three as it does to Div- stays in Division One. It does help some, but it's really out of balance. So that's a tremendous challenge that, that will be there forever.
3: Well, stat, to just uh, jump in here, the uh, the stats I have for from NCAA uh, for the year 2003-2004, there were a total of 120 programs dropped. 40 of those were Division Three, Division One. I'm sorry. Uh, generally, it's spread out among divisions. Uh, the time period between 1993 and 97, in the NCAA, there were 322 men's teams dropped. Uh, of those, Division One was 34 percent, Division Two was 31, and Division Three was 35 percent. So it, it is spread out uh, pretty much across divisions when we see programs eliminated. I'll go over here.
5: Um, I just want to thank you all for having the courage to get up there and give such diverse opinions. I think it's wonderful and it's, it's very helpful to hear the different perspectives. Um, I right now would like to hear a little bit more about this survey option because I really can't wrap my mind around, let's just take a small school with a thousand students and they're doing this survey option and I'm like, how are these the sports who are non-traditional sports ever even gonna come up? I mean, there are so few children who are exposed to wrestling. It's a fabulous sport. It doesn't, no one really gets to do it until they're in high school. Um, you know, kids doing water polo. I mean, you, when you talk about looking at youth sports, kids right now are so acclimated to wanting to do the sports that they see on TV. They're not doing the non-traditional sports, or if they are, it's not until they've gotten booted out of the traditional sports. Um, and so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how logically will that Work to have a survey because um, who, it's, it sounds so subjective. When you get those survey results, who really is going to be making the decisions to say, okay, 80% of the kids want football? I mean, I just, I, I really can't see how, um, who at that college level is going to be looking at those survey results, making decisions where I guess proportionality, it seems so logical to me, and even though I, I, I don't like it all how you guys are saying it's playing out. I don't think that's fair. I don't like that there are sports being cut to make women's sports happen. I think that's not appropriate. But I really would like to hear more about how that survey would logically work, because I I can't wrap my arms around a process that would feel any more fair than proportionality.
2: I think it's enormously problematic. (laughs) I just, I mean, again, I understand the argument about why we want opportunities based on interest, but to measure it with a survey or just to walk down that path is very problematic, and I, and I wanna step back in terms again to, to look at the broader issue here. Title IX is about civil rights legislation. To my knowledge, it is the only piece of civil rights legislation that has ever said to the underrepresented group, you can have an, a benefit, but before you can have access to the benefit, you have to establish an a priori level of interest to receive it. So are we gonna say, and I don't mean to be controversial here, but imagine suggesting after the Civil Rights Voting Act, saying to African Americans, you can have the right to vote, and we'll protect that right, but we want you to fill out an interest survey first to determine at what level of interest you're interested in voting. Now that seems utterly ridiculous, utterly ridiculous, and yet it, the logical extension of that is what is happening with Title IX. And I, don't, I think, if, again, if you go down the interest road and establish that as a precedent, I think you're talking about a slippery slope. What about band? What about student government? What about debate? These are all extracurricular activities within institutions of higher education. So it, it's not as easy and clean as it seems. The, I guess what I'm saying is there's the practical issue of how you would develop and measure surveys anyway to answer this woman's questions. But I want to I back, back it up to the principle of what we're talking about here which would be a fundamental shift, and let me just say one other thing about this. The three prongs, for those of you who do not know, are proportionality, the second prong is, has the, has the institution shown a history of continuing expansion, okay? Now I want you to think about the difference between those two prongs and the third prong. Proportionality, and is the institution meeting the, the or has there been a history of continuing expansion, okay? By definition, Those two prongs put the burden of proof on the institution to offer the opportunity, and it implies or suggests that the interest is already there. If you go down the interest model, you have by definition shifted the burden of proof to the student athlete to say, I can't have an opportunity until I can first prove that I have interest. That is a very dangerous precedent to set in my opinion.
4: Let's go back to that the Don't back. mess me up. In tennis. Well, keep, oh, keep in
3: oh, mind that director. also the, all the conversation about the, the regulation of Title IX, it doesn't apply. Boys have no protection under Title IX. They don't enjoy equal protection under the law because of Title IX. Uh, so you're not even considering the interest of the boys. And I'll tell you, on campuses, all across the country, the male athletes are trying to start teams because the teams aren't available to them. And they are petitioning and pushing, and there's no way for them to even register their interest. Uh, and I just think it's a reasonable thing to say, hey, let's, uh, let's look at interest and start measuring it as times have changed in the last 35 years. And let's let's get an understanding of what the interest levels are of our college students. Let's go back to the back. Hi, I'm
0: Gloria from Stanford uh, University School of Medicine. I'm sorry, um, we can't hear you. Okay, I'm Gloria from the Stanford University School of Medicine. I'm an epidemiologist. I had a question about survey. President George Bush had a survey to all the college athletes, I think, in 2003 or 2004, and maybe, Mary Jo, can you can comment on exactly what the poll results showed, because I believe some of that was based on interest.
2: Uh, do you know the I don't, I don't I don't know the the do you know Marsha? the
3: right the 2005 clarification by the Office of Civil Rights uh,
0: Yeah, I think um, I just wanted to say a couple quick things um, about this whole three prongs and everything cuz I think Mary Jo put her finger on it and I think that there's also a little bit of the dilemma about the flexibility that Title IX provides at the school's insistence and how that's playing out in the tensions that we're seeing now. The proportionality is a presumption, as you said, of if you've got 50% female students, that we expect to see the school setting out 50% of the opportunities for their female students. And of course, what we have here in athletics that's very different than any other area is There are teams for women, teams for men. The school decides how many it will allow to play by gender to start with. So we're already really talking about fixed numbers and opportunities. So the whole debate is what's the fair number between women and men? So proportionality assumes you have 50% female students. You assume 50% of the opportunities that the school provides will be for women and 50% for men. The next prong, which Mary Jo described, which is if you can show a continuing level of expanding opportunities for the unrepresented sex, and should we live so long as to see males be unrepresented in the opportunities provided, Title IX will be right in there protecting them. So Title IX helps men and women. It's just that it's women (laughs) are the ones, as we've heard over and over again, that started in third class, really not even second class citizenship. So it does protect men too and in fact has operated to protect men in certain circumstances. But okay, think about Equal Pay Act. Suppose we had another civil rights law that said women aren't getting paid the same as men for the same job but as long as an employer is making progress year after year towards getting women to equal pay, they'll comply with Title IX, or Equal Pay Act. And that's really what that second prong did. It's a very, it's an unknown in civil rights law otherwise, that you don't have to get to equality. All you have to do is keep working towards equality and you can be in compliance there. That's prong two. And 35 years later, it's not a surprise that not that many schools can keep showing continual progress for 35 years, but they've never been able to get there. They haven't continued to try. So prong two doesn't help them keep where they are today. So then we get to prong two, which is Mar- three rather, which is Mary Jo said, okay, you're not providing the same opportunities proportionally. You haven't been improving over time. So can you show as a school that women aren't as interested in men in the sense that we can't, there aren't women who want to play. And if the school has the burden of coming forward and showing it can't find interested women to play, it doesn't have to meet the proportionality test either. That's prong three. But traditionally, it's been the school's burden to show women aren't interested. Now, there are three million women, young women, playing high school sports in this country, and about 160,000 opportunities in intercollegiate athletics. The idea that schools can't get, out of a three million pool, 160,000 slots, has been very hard for schools to show, not surprisingly. And, as the panel also said, they've been dropping women's teams, too. So now the the effort is, is, although Eric you say you really support Title IX and you don't wanna take anything away from women, but what you really are talking about is taking away the engine that has been forcing the schools to open the opportunities to participate to women, which is that prong one and that End point of proportionality. And you have to m- monkey around with the interest test and put the burden on the female students and come up with, there's no debate about surveys if they're decent surveys as a piece of the equation, right. but there's no doubt that with three million high school students, women students, there's enough interest for them to play, unless you put the burden and you change the whole and you use silly surveys like, I think, what happened in 05, where the Office for Civil Rights said, just send emails around to the students on campus, ask their interests, and if they don't respond, the schools can assume there's no interest. And that's it. And then we, the Office for Civil Rights, will assume schools are in compliance when they argue they got no response to interest and therefore they can reduce or keep artificially low the opportunities they provide to students. And that's now, those are the kinds of ways that they're monkeying around with this interest test to try to undermine participation obligations by universities.
4: So Marcia, I'm going to ask you to help me, where there's a demonstrated interest two to one in Northern California, as an example, three exactly. to two in the country, for men's tennis participants over women, and the women have twice as many scholarships. Title IX, help me, please.
0: Right. I, I hear your pain, and it seems so unfair, and I think this is the, this is the other part of Title IX, at the university's insistence, when the fight went on around the regulations and interpreting what Title IX means in athletics, they insisted, let us keep flexibility about which teams we offer for women and which teams we offer for men so that these programs don't have to be mirror images of each other. So we may decide that we're gonna invest a lot more in women's tennis, and less in men's tennis. But then we're also gonna invest more, I hate to say it,
4: in football,
0: which happens to be male students. Some people say there should be women's athletics, men's athletics, and then football, as if football isn't male student athletes too, but of course they are. Or we're gonna invest in men's soccer, but not women's soccer.
1: I hate to cut this off, but okay, we're over time already. We have I, one I'm last sorry. question over here in
0: the back. That's the, that's the dilemma of trying to look at team to team as opposed to overall program. Hi. Um, I am a
5: current master's student in the School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm also an aspiring coach. I'd like to break into the coaching field at the college level. So I was wondering, are there any national initiatives that are going on to increase the percentage of female coaches at the college level? Like what, what's being done in that regard? And then do you have any suggestions for how uh, an aspiring female coach could break into the field?
2: Um, I don't know the answer about initiatives, but I know that Judy Sweet does. and she's, But let me just say one, one quick thing, too, again, let's not um, forget about this issue. Don't assume that women aren't getting hired because they're not as qualified, because they're infinitely more qualified than they used to be when they represented 90% of all head coaches. Because since then they've had opportunities and scholarships, but um, I know we're out of time, so should I shouldn't even bring this up, but uh, never underestimate the issue of homophobia when it comes to the number of women head coaches in women's athletics, and I don't think that Judy Sweet wanted to tackle that particular question. So.
5: Initiatives. Could, could I, I think I, I think we're gonna. Um, since Judy Sweet's gonna be on the next panel, she'll respond to oh, that. Great. And let's take. Um, I'll let first. Uh, I, I uh, was Ralph just it.
3: hoping to comment. It, what what is your sport that you want to coach in? Uh, track, and track and field. Yeah, uh, yeah I was about I, to I, say I, get hired by Stanford. I would talk to your coaches association, become a member of your coaches association, go to their uh, convention every year. U.S. Uh, Track Coaches Association is a big organization. That's a good way to jump in. You get to know other coaches and, and you can network. So that's just something.
1: Thank you, thank you all. Thank,
2: thank, you. thank you all to this panel. thank you. Oh, thank, you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
0: The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.